0: Bible turn to John chapter 17. John 17, we come back this morning to the high priestly prayer of our Lord. We focus our attention in these moments on the final petition of Jesus in this high priestly prayer. He, our Lord, is diving headlong toward the altar of the cross, upon which he will lay down his own sinless life as a sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. As he sets his face like flint toward Calvary, he is compelled to pray. The, the most sacred of sacrifices prompts him to do the most sacred of duties. And that is to petition his father. I've likened this chapter and our study of it to this before. I'll say it again. It's like we're taking our spiritual stethoscope and we're we're putting it to the chest of our Lord. And we're hearing his spiritual heartbeat as he utters these most intimate words between Father and Son, and as he concerns himself with his apostles and then with us, we see glimpses of his glory. We catch a fold of his holiness that we maybe have seen touches of before, but now we see in, in depth and in glory in this chapter. Indeed, this chapter is one of the mountaintop chapters of all of Scripture, whereas the other gospel records have told us about how Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, steals away into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays for himself. And as he stares down the cross, he cries out to the Father, Father, if it be possible for this cup to be passed from me, but Lord, not my will but yours be done. John backs up the train a little bit, back a, a few hours into the upper room, and he gives us the words of our Lord as he prays this high priestly prayer in the upper room. We've seen this prayer that it essentially breaks down into three parts In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples, his apostles that are there in the upper room with him. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for all those who will believe in him through those apostles' witness. This mirrors, by the way, the the prayer of the Old Testament high priest the night before the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement happened in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. It was the one time a year in which the high priest would would bring a sacrifice, the, the blood of bulls and goats, and would sprinkle it on the, the altar, the, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the mercy seat as it was in the most holy place uh, where God dwelt with men. Uh, you'll remember that, that they went in uh, in cover of holiness. It was a, a quite a sacred event. It happened just on that one day, and the high priest would, would offer a bull Uh, and the blood of that bull for his sins and the sins of his family. And then he would bring two goats as sacrifices, and by lot, one goat would be chosen, and that would become the scapegoat. And and he would lay his hands on the head of that goat and transfer symbolically all the sins of the nation of Israel, all of their sins of ignorance to this goat, and send it out into the wilderness to go and be uh, consumed in the wilderness. And then the other goat they would take and sacrifice, and he would take the blood of that goat and the blood of that bull and go into the most holy place, this innermost sanctuary, and sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat with this blood of sacrifice. By the time of Jesus' day, there were a lot of traditions and and structures in place that would would, uh, help them know how to worship on this day, the Day of Atonement. One was that the high priest would have a group of men appointed to him from the night before, and they would keep him awake. They would make sure he went through all the ritual washings and cleansings he was supposed to do, and they would meet, keep him awake throughout the night and be praying for him and with him so he would have an all-night vigil as he headed into the Day of Atonement. And his prayer on that night as he prayed kind of ran in concentric circles. He started by praying for himself and his family, and then he He went beyond that in the next circle and prayed for those men who were appointed to him that that God would make them holy and keep them to their appointed task. And then he would broaden that and pray for all of the people of God who would be covered by the blood of the offering the next day. This is similar to what our Lord does here in the upper room as our high priest. He starts and prays first for himself that he would be faithful to fulfill the task and be glorified by the Father. And then he moves to pray for those men who have been appointed to him to keep this vigil with him. And he prays for them and for their preservation and their purification. And then he closes his prayer by focusing on those who would believe in the apostles, believe in Christ through the apostles, namely the church. He prays for the people of God. He prays for our unity and for our ultimate glorification. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you love me from before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Beloved, there are some thoughts that are too heavy, too significant, too magnificent for this world to bear. There are some realities in Scripture that pierce our reality and go far beyond. There, there's a, a heaviness to them, and, and this... Reality of what we see in John 17, and particularly in John 17, 20 to 26, is one of those thoughts. Frankly, it seems too difficult to bear. Why would our Lord Jesus be mindful of us hours before he goes to the cross to suffer and die for our sins? Why would he have our names on his mind and heart Why in this unique moment would he be so concerned about millions of of relatively insignificant folks like me and you who will be forgotten by history but never forgotten by our Savior? Why in the world does he care so much about us that he would pray for us before he gives his life for us? Indeed, what a Savior. It's a mind-blowing, show-stopping reality that Jesus would pray for you and for me. The fact that he does pray in this way shows us that he's committed in his focus to finish the mission. He was sent by the Father into the world to accomplish a mission, and he is focused on accomplishing that mission, the redemption of his people. He's praying himself through to the end. He is not going to misstep one iota. He is going to be sure he completes it perfectly, and so he prays and pleads with the Lord, his Father, to help him be faithful and to see through with these people that are his. This prayer also evidences his great love for his own. That he is not in this moment loving himself, but he is loving those he came to save. He's loving them to the end, as John said in John 13 and verse 1 that the whole upper room discourse and this prayer especially is evidence that Jesus loved his own, and he loved them to the end, all the way through. And because he loved them all the way through, he prays for them and for us in this prayer. This prayer is also evidence of our Lord's eternal mindset. He's laser-focused on his mission. He's full of love for his people, and he has an eternal mindset. He's caught up in the moment in his humanity, This comes, this moment of time in which he has to give his life as a ransom for many. But he's not focused just on his immediate future. He's not caught up with the the challenge staring him in the face. Rather, he, he thinks beyond that moment with an eternal mindset, and he thinks past himself. And he thinks forward to all those who will believe in him through those he sends out to spread his word. He is a faithful son and a fervent Savior. The nucleus of his prayer in our text this morning is for the unity of the church. He prays first for their unity with one another, and then he prays second for their unity with the Godhead. He had prayed for them and uh, for the apostles, specifically in verses 11 to 16, that they'd be preserved from the evil one. And he prayed for their purification, their sanctification in verses 17 to 19. And now he prays for their unification and the church's unification in verses 20 to 26. And that's a necessary progression, isn't it? Preservation carried along by purification leading to unification. As we're preserved by the grace and power of God, as we're purified by the word of God, we know more of the unity that is present in God and in his church. And so Jesus prays to the Father that we would be kept sanctified, and made one as he and the Father are one. The question on the table this morning is, what is Jesus praying for? When he prays for our oneness, for our unity, what is he asking for? Because there's a lot of ideas of what unity is. Unity is thought of as uniformity, that we all look and act and do the same things. Unity is thought of as an emotional stability in relationships, that we like each other and we generally get along with each other. Unity is thought of as an absence of difficulty and differences and problems. Is that what unity is? Is that what this oneness is that Jesus prays for? Well, let's try to answer that from his prayer in verses 20 to 26. And as much hope as I had to cover all six verses in one sermon, it's not going to happen. So we'll consider this morning the nature of this unity. Your stomach will thank me when you're out for lunch. The nature of this unity. We see that right away in verse 20. He's concerned for more than his immediate apostles. He's he's not praying just for them, but also for those who will believe in him through the apostles' word. This is a, a prayerful concern about the church in every age. And they're built upon the word of the apostles. So this unity, the nature of this unity is for the church. It's not just for these men. It's not just for a few select followers. It's for all those who are in Christ, by grace, through faith, in his finished work. If you're in Christ, this prayer is for you. And you believe in Christ based on the apostles' testimony. That is the foundation of the church. It's the, the apostolic witness to the word and work of Christ. Now, I know this is ABC of your spirituality and your Christianity, but we need to remind ourselves of the spiritual alphabet once in a while, Correct. Paul does in Ephesians 2, verse 20. He tells us that the the chief cornerstone of the church is Christ. In other words, he's the one who sets plumb for all other stones in the building. He's the one by which all others are judged, whether they're in line or out of line. Christ is the cornerstone. But you remember he goes on to say, and the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the body, the church. So the prophets, the Old Testament prophets and their witness the New Testament apostles and their witness testify to the church of every age through the written word of God about what God has said and done, namely about who this Jesus is and about how he is the word of God, came to make, him, make God known to us. And so our faith comes by hearing the word. And as we hear the word of Christ it, that's been delivered to us by the apostles, we believe and have faith, and in having faith, we're added to the church. And that word is always our foundation. It does not need to be relayed. It does not need to be reformed or reshaped or rethought. We don't need new revelation to form a new foundation because we're not forming a new building. We stand in a long line of faithful men and women in this holy faith, once for all delivered to the saints, given to us by Christ, to his apostles, delivered faithfully by them, to us, and we stand on that foundation. Which, by the way, is the answer to Christ's prayer in verses 17 to 19, right? That this would happen. So we have 2,000 years of church history to look back from the time of the apostles to us, and we get to see that Christ's prayer in verses 17 to 19 was answered, correct? Christ sanctified his apostles with his word, they were sanctified in the truth. And they were, in being sanctified, they were set apart to be servants. We talked about that last week. And in serving the Lord, they took the word of God to the world, and they turned the world upside down, Luke says in Acts, by proclaiming the message of the gospel, and the church was formed. God used them as faithful witnesses, and many believed through their witness. And so Christ answered his prayer in building the church. And now he's concerned in our text for the unity of that church. Notice that it's a unity that's based upon and shaped by the unity that the Father has with the Son. So it's a unity for the church, and it's a unity that's shaped by and based upon the unity that the Father has with the Son, or the Son has with the Father. You can say it either way. That's how he prays in verse 21. And let's just be clear here. These are Hard words. I don't mean they're hard in the Greek. They basically read the same way as in the English. And there's not a lot of like nuanced depth to studying the Greek in this text. There's insight you can gain for sure, but they're just hard words. What does Jesus mean when he says that, that we, the church, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Uh, That's an eternal truckload of truth in a few phrases, right? 23, he prays again, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly or wholly, completely one. So he's concerned for the unity of the church to be just like the unity that the Father has with the Son. So it's a unity shaped by That unity in the Godhead, and it's a unity that looks like the unity in the Godhead. So the question is what is that? What does that look like? What is this oneness between Father and Son? Well, good thing we're in the Gospel of John because he has loved to answer that question. That's been a theme he has answered or given us all throughout his Gospel. And actually, we don't even have to leave this chapter to answer that question. We could. We could go back to chapter 6 and look at how he talks about his oneness with the Father. How he has the same authority and he has the same words and he does the same works as the Father does. We could go back and look at that. But we don't need to leave chapter 17. What does he mean when he prays that this church would be the, the same oneness that we have Father and Son? Well, it doesn't mean that, that Father and Son get amalgamated into some personality blob where they lose their distinctions, and they lose their roles, and they they lose their unique functions within the Godhead, and they just become one. That's not what that means, and that certainly is not what is meant by unity in the church, that so we, we lose all personality distinctions and, and all distinctions of skills and giftings by the Spirit, and we just become this uniform blob of people. We all look the same, and talk the same, and act the same, and, and do the same, and No, that's not what is being prayed for here by our Lord. We maintain our personhood. We become united because of this unity of Father and Son. We look at chapter 17 to learn what this unity is. We learn, first of all, that it's a a unity of purpose. They're united in purpose. In verse 1 and then again in verse 5, Jesus prays for himself and he he bookends that prayer in verses 1 through 5 with this concern of the glory of the Father and the Son. This is why he came into the world, so that the, the Godhead would be glorified, would be magnified, would be seen to be as glorious as they are. That their glory would be made known through creation and then through redemption and ultimately through consummation of that redemption, bringing us safely home. All of that is not just for the purpose of our redemption. Christ came to save sinners, for sure. But that serves a a greater, more ultimate purpose. And that more ultimate purpose is the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son. The glory of the Spirit made known through the redemption of Sinners like you and me. And so the, the Father is magnified. His perfections and His holiness are put on display by by God the Son accomplishing our redemption. God the Son is, is magnified. He's made much of. He's exalted and, and ultimately restored to His eternal glory that He shared with the Father in eternity past when He completes His work. And as evidence of of his fulfillment of that work, and that it is completed, he sits down in heaven and receives the glory and exaltation due his name. So they're united in this purpose of glorification, and so to the church. we're, We're marked by unity and oneness when we share this purpose of glorifying God in all things. And that's a theme of Scripture, right? You don't have to think too hard or long to think of texts that point you to the glory of God through the church being your purpose. You can think simply of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, where Paul's talking about very mundane things over which Christians disagree. Like, can I eat this meat or that? Should I go here or there or not? And as he addresses that and brings it to conclusion at the end of chapter 10, he says, whether therefore you eat or drink or go to this place or that place or whatever you do, what's the next phrase? Do all to the glory of God. That is your purpose, to magnify your maker and your redeeming God. And so the church is unified in that purpose. We have that same shared purpose as Father and Son share. They're also united in plan. Father and Son united in plan. We see that in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 17. I won't read it again, but again then in verse 6. The the plan was for the Son to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given to Him, he says in verses 2 and 3. This is the common goal, the, the salvation of sinners chosen by the Father and given to the Son. The Father and Son were one in mind and one in will and one in action and one in plan. They were going to accomplish this salvation of the lost. So much so that Jesus could could say that he only did the works of his Father. Remember when he said that back in chapter 8? I only do the works of my Father that he tells me to do. He's laser-focused in his life on completing the job assigned by the Father to carry out the plan. So too in the church, right? Our oneness, our unity is to be in line with this plan of, of Father and Son. The church is in the world to hold fast to this word of life, not to, to keep it safe in, in our confines and in our, our holy huddle, but hold fast to it, holding it forth into a perverse generation by which they see a changed and redeemed people who proclaim the power of God, which is the gospel, and, and they model this power through changed lives, transformed lives that validate their message. And so we share purpose with Father and Son, and we have unity in that shared purpose brought together by the Son into this purpose. The church is a foreign outpost in which the work of heaven is accomplished on foreign soil. She's the agent of God used in rescuing lost sinners as she proclaims Jesus to the world. There's a shared plan. We're united in plan. We're also united in proclamation United in proclamation, this is the unity of the Father and Son, first in verse 8, and then again in verses 14 and 17. He says in verse 8 that the, the words that the Father gave him to give, he gave, he proclaimed. And the disciples took them in and received them. He says again in verse 14 that the word that was given to him is the word that he delivered to them. And then he says in verse 17, that word that he has given will sanctify them, those apostles will make them set apart and holy, ready for the Master's use. It's a repeated theme by our Lord in the Gospel of John. He said over and over and over again that I've come not to tell you what I think or my own words, but to deliver to you the words given to me by my Father. They are united in proclamation. They they have the same truth. And Jesus comes proclaiming that truth. He is indeed, as John told us in the prologue, John 1.1, He is the Word. And as the word of God, the the proclaimer of God, he came into the world, John 1.18, to make God known. Because God has not been seen. Jesus came to exegete the Father. Jesus, the only God, that text says, came to exegete, make him known, expose the Father to us. How did he do that? Primarily through his words. He delivered the truth to us. And then he made it possible for us to understand by his works. He laid down his life for us that we might be redeemed. So to the church, we share this oneness of proclamation. We're built upon the truth. And Paul says in his letter to Timothy that we're the the bastion of truth. We're the fortress of truth. We're the pillar and the buttress of truth in the world. We're to hold fast to this truth and proclaim broadly this truth in a world that has believed a bunch of lies. In a world caught up in the the deception of the father of lies, we're to be the place in the world proclaiming the truth in line with the Son, delivered by the will of the Father. Father and Son are also united in perfection. That's in verse 1, verse 5, again in verses 10 and 11. United in perfection. Remember back in verse 1, Jesus had the boldness to lift his eyes to heaven. And because he is the Son incarnate, It's as though he's piercing through the layers, dividing humanity and deity. And in looking to the heavens, he pierces up to the the dwelling place of God enthroned above the heavens, and he speaks to the Father as though they are on equal plane of of holiness and of perfection of being. He speaks to the Father in verse 10, and he says, all that are mine are yours, And, and we all say that, right? Every human ever made says that. All that's mine is yours to the Lord. You own nothing. He owns everything, including your next breath. But none of us can say, no human that's ever lived outside of Jesus can say, all yours are mine. Only the incarnate Son, who is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent with the Father, who is God, very God, in human flesh, who is of divine nature and added to his divine nature, human nature, in the one person, Jesus the Christ. Only he can say to the Father, what you have is mine. They are united in their perfections, their holy attributes, their transcendence above all that they have made. There's a unique oneness of essence in the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons. One nature, shared in the Godhead, all of the same essence. And then, unique in their persons, carrying out their unique roles to accomplish the plans for the glory of their own, His own name, Jehovah God. There's a uniqueness to this. It's a, a uniqueness we can't fully know or entirely mimic can't have the the fullness of it, but there there is an element of which we know this in part. We see this oneness of holiness and power and knowledge and justice and mercy and righteousness and glory and all the other things you think of as attributes of God. We see them shared in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, all having all of those realities as part of their nature and essence. We can't know that to its full, but we can know this oneness of perfection as the basis of our oneness. So because they have this entire unity in the Godhead, they were one in purpose and plan and accomplished our redemption. Having this one essence, we can be chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son and indwelt by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit and gifted by the Spirit to serve in the body of Christ. We have union with God. We're, we're put into Christ and He into us. It's, it's mysterious and, and glorious and it's the basis of our unity in the body. Christ in us, the hope This is why this unity goes far beyond where you work, your background, what you enjoy, what you do for your hobby, how you talk, what accent you use, what skin color or tone of color you have on your skin, what cultural norms you're used to or set you off or irritate you and frustrate you. We have a unity that goes far beyond normal affinities like that. Those are the kinds of things that that draw other groups together. And there's a unity in other groups outside of and sometimes inside of the church related to those kinds of things. Similar interests or or similar backgrounds or similar life experiences. But we have something that, that trumps everything human, everything experiential. We have the reality of Christ in us and us in Christ. If we have seen our sin for what it is and turned from that sin and run to Christ as the only hope for our salvation, the moment we're born again, we're baptized by the Spirit into Christ, and His Spirit indwells us, and we in Him, Him in us. Are you tracking? This is the basis of our unity as the body of Christ. So you can like all kinds of things I don't like. You can give your life to all kinds of things I won't give my life to. But if we have the shared reality of Christ, born again into him and he in us by his spirit, we have an immediate connection. We have a a unity, a oneness that far exceeds anything you can experience in any other realm. This is the joy. If, If you've never been on a mission trip, here is my Regular plug to go. Of all the many benefits of going to a different place where they don't look like you, they don't eat like you, they don't talk like you, they don't act like you. One of the joys of going there, get yourself out of your comfort zone, first of all, beyond that is to see that the glorious gospel of Jesus reaches people different than you. And there's a oneness and a unity that you can know with that person, though you cannot speak their language in full and they cannot speak yours in full. There is a joy As your souls connect because you're connected in Christ. It's similar to what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he he tells us to to not have selfish ambition. If if we have the same love and the the same affections of Christ and we were to be of one accord, literally of one sold, sold together in Christ. This is the unity we have in the perfections of the Godhead given to us by and through the Son. And also this then is the basis for our pursuit of that perfection. Because God is holy, we also desire to be holy. We pursue further likeness to Him. And as we do that, our, our hearts are united more, right? As you pursue holiness, you look around and see others who are pursuing holiness, and you're united with them in the battle. There's a camaraderie and a friendship and a a oneness that happens as you fight together against sin and the devil in this world. And as you struggle through that in your own heart and you see a brother or a sister doing the same thing, leaning on the same text, praying the same prayers, pursuing the same holiness, you know a oneness with them that you would never know outside of Christ. Father and Son are united in perfection. They're also united in perfect love. United in perfect love. Yes, I had to get another P, so I went with perfect love. There is no P word for love, in case you're wondering. Passion, that doesn't do it. I looked. They're united in perfect love. Jesus prays in verse 24 and asks for the church to be brought to heaven so that they can behold him in his glory. This is the glory given to the Son by the Father. Why? Because he loved him before the foundation of the world. In other words, this is a love that preexisted, any work in this world by by God, the creation of the world. It's a, a perfect love. It's the trademark of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is that they have shared love, perfect in their loving relationship toward one another within the Godhead. It's an everlasting, unending love from eternity past, to eternity future. It knows no end and it knew no beginning. The son does not earn the love of the Father through his obedient accomplishment. Like, say, John the Baptist, who is who is more beloved by God because of his faithful service to the Lord. That's not what's being spoken of here by Jesus in this prayer. It's a prayer that it's a love that far exceeds and goes way beyond his obedience. It's a perfection of love whole and unchanging since before the foundation of the world. And it's this perfection of love which is also the, the characteristic of oneness in his body, the church. So she's to be united in and, and by this love. Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 5 that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by his spirit. So If you've been baptized into the body of Christ, believing in our Lord Jesus for salvation, you have been given the love of God, poured into your heart by His Spirit. That love, Colossians 2.2, says that we're knit together in love. That love that's poured out by His Spirit in us then knits us together. So it's the love of God, perfected in the Godhead, brought to us by the work of the Son, applied by the Spirit, Knitting us together as one in love. And then it becomes the hallmark of the church, right? Are you tracking? Love of God given to us, poured out by his spirit, knit together in love? Is it just some nebulous, you know, I love you, man, kind of thing? No, Jesus said in in the end of chapter 13 in the Upper Room Discourse that you, this is a new commandment I'm giving to you to love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, this is how the world will know you are mine. How? How? Because you love one another. Well, what did he had just done for them to show them he loved them? He washed their feet. The, the lowest of the low of services in a situation like that. This is a, an active, sacrificial, constant giving of self for the sake of brothers and sisters in the family of God. This family is to be marked by the love by which we have been loved. The church is united by love, and we're held together by love, and we abound in love toward one another. That's the oneness of the Godhead given to the church. So I ask you, how is it that Father and Son are one? Well, just sticking to John 17, they're united in purpose and plan and proclamation and perfection and perfect love. And this is the oneness, I think, that Jesus is praying for for us, that this kind of oneness will be present in his body in every age. And this isn't often how unity, oneness, is thought about in the church, right? It wasn't very far into my pastoral ministry when I got pressed with this text and this question. So you say that the church is the body of Christ, and Jesus prayed for the oneness of his, of his body, and it was someone who was antagonistic toward the faith, loosely attached to the church, looking for an excuse to get out of the command of the gospel, frankly. And as they were talking with me, they, they said, if that's true, if you are really of Christ, why are there so many divisions in the church? Why are there so many denominations and, and church structures and different church groups? Aren't we all supposed to be one? And and what they mean is, aren't we all supposed to look like we're one? Aren't we all supposed to have some kind of organizational unity in, in which it's clear by our organization and our function that we are all getting along, or at least we're all under the same umbrella, right? That kind of thinking has led to to all kinds of of rampant ecumenism, ecumenical thought in which we, we push down theological truth, we run to the lowest common denominator of belief systems and of practice, and we say, hey, around this, We can rally. And if you believe this, just this, don't worry about any of that other stuff. Just if you believe this, you call yourself a Christian, then you're under the umbrella, and and that's unity. We, We can just all be one if we're all in the same organization, and we all say we're Christians, and we all look like we're getting along, and the world thinks we're one because we're all together in this organized unity. Is this what Jesus is praying for? Is he praying for a shallow pool of shared belief covered by a, a pronounced and produced unity over all who call themselves Christians? Well, I think you, I hope you know my answer. Whether you agree with me or not, I hope you know. It's, it's not that, it's far deeper, it's far greater. He's also not praying, by the way, for an emotional state of unity in which the church feels united because of some shared experience or ministry effort or common similarity. And I don't mean to say there's not emotions connected to true unity, there absolutely are. And it's one of the most joyous experiences in the body of Christ. Paul speaks of that in Romans 15, that you would, would know this unity in, in joy with one another. Well, there's definitely emotions connected to true unity, but it's easy to switch out unity for an emotional affinity. That I like these people and I get along with them and, and you know, we kind of jive together, so there's a unity there. And I, I feel good about us being together. So we're, we're united because I feel good about us as a group. He's also not just praying for everyone to, to find a way to get along with each other, some type, type of relational peace alone. So get rid of the differences and the difficulties and just find a way to get along, would you? Father, help them get along. That's not what he's praying. He's praying far deeper than that, far, far greater. He's also not praying for an absence of challenges, which might threaten unity. He's not praying that that somehow the Father would remove the difficulties, and thereby they would know a oneness of heart and mind. In fact, I think it'd be a good thought experience as we kind of finish out my sermon this morning. I want to help you think through some of the threats that come against the unity of the body of Christ. So Jesus prays for the oneness of the church, just as the Father is one with the Son, We've seen that that's a prayer for the church to be one in purpose, in plan, in proclamation, in perfection, and in love. It's a unity guaranteed and grounded in our relationship to God, but it's a oneness we also have responsibility to pursue and maintain. It's a oneness that can can ebb and flow, right? It's a, a unity that can be greater one day and lesser the next, we can know more or less in our experience in the body of Christ of this oneness and of this unity. And let me just say, over the last, I don't know, I haven't thought of this until just now, so careful it comes out. Over the last few years, God has blessed us as a church with unity, with oneness. It's a joy to be a part of that. That does not mean we're without problems, it does not mean we're without difficulties or differences or challenges. It means that God in His kindness has answered the prayer of His Son and helped us be one in plan and purpose and proclamation and growing perfection and love for one another. As you think about the New Testament, as you think about unity being threatened, what tends to come against that kind of unity? Jesus has already told them that there's an evil one in the world. He's, he's prayed that God would pr- the Father would protect them from the evil one. So we know he hates the church. He hates the work of this unity in the church because when we're united, we'll see next week, our witness is increased. Our effectiveness in the world is better. So Satan hates a unified church. He hates a church walking in the oneness of the Godhead. So he challenges this unity. Well, how does that happen? Well, you just have to think, as I've done often in the Gospel of John, think ahead to the book of Acts. They're so closely connected in location and also in thought. Jesus prays for the church to be one and then to be uh, protected in that oneness. So just think of, of the challenges the church faced in the book of Acts. And, and is there a more united church than we see in Acts 2? Right after the Spirit of God falls upon them, Acts 2:42 to 47 is a good explanation of what this oneness looks like. They're devoted to the same things, one in heart and mind. Well, chapter 4, just one challenge that comes against them is outside persecution, right? Chapter 4, right away, the religious leaders find a way. They're annoyed by Peter and John preaching in the temple. They grab Peter and John. They arrest them. They put them under the, the hardship of trial. They try to press them every way they know how to get them to stop preaching under threat of law, their own law. They say, we'll release you, but never speak of this Jesus again in this town. That's a threat to unity. The very thing that the church has committed themselves to do is now the very thing which the government officials are saying, don't ever do that again, or you're going to pay for it. Now, you're going to have people in the church saying, you know, maybe we should just back off a little bit, I don't know, maybe retool some things, maybe don't stand on the temple steps, you know, we just, we're going to rethink this. There is a moment here in Acts 4, carrying over into Acts 5, in which the unity of the church is threatened. So outside attempts at persecution and oppression tend to threaten unity. Acts 5, the next threat we see in the book of Acts is internal. It's Ananias and Sapphira, moved along by selfish ambition. Seeing all the the benevolence and and compassionate, uh, sacrificial giving of the church, they're compelled to sell their own property, and they come and they give a gift, but they lie about it. And why did they lie about it? Because they wanted more prestige among the church. It was all about them. Their giving was for them, not for the Lord. This obviously threatens unity. Left unchecked, this will drive a wedge in the body of Christ and create factions of which people will say, this is my kingdom, my work, don't touch it. I gave to that project. You don't have any right to say how it's going to go, right? That's the kind of thing that happens in the body of Christ when selfish ambition threatens unity. Acts 6, we turn to the next chapter, and we see that there is a difficulty in the church in just functionality. There's a group of people that feel like they're being impartially treated, that they're not being treated rightly. It's the Hellenist widows. The Greek-speaking widows feel like they're being missed in the daily distribution of goods to the widows who have a need. And they bring it to the church, and it it creates a grave danger to the true oneness of the body of Christ. To have a group in the church feel like the leaders of the church and the majority of the church doesn't care about them, doesn't care if they exist, doesn't care if their needs are met, just lets them go on their merry way. Acts 15, you remember this wonderful text in which the Jerusalem Council happens? Why did it get called together? Because there's difficulty within the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ. There's conflict over doctrine, conflict over theological truth, namely the gospel and over its implications and and how Gentile believers should act in relationship to Mosaic law. Should they keep these aspects of Mosaic law that are important to Jewish believers? And so there was a difficulty in that moment that created a massive divide or potentially massive divide in the fabric of the body of Christ. So conflict over doctrine and its implications has potential to threaten oneness in the body. Later in that same chapter, you could call it the chapter of conflict in the book of Acts. Later in that same chapter, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out on another missionary journey. And as they do, Paul uh, is ready to go, and Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark with us. You know that guy that betrayed and left the first missionary journey? He's doing better. I'm thankful for him. He'll be an asset. Let's take him. Paul says, not on your life. I'm not taking him. He'll be a hindrance, a weakness, a difficulty. He has to stay. And there's this sharp divide over what? Ministry practices. It's just a question of of who has the better idea on best ministry practices. That's all it is. Assessing of character and making a decision in the moment of what role should this guy play. Serve. And it's a sharp division, and as you know, it created a distinction between the ministries of Paul and Barnabas. Paul went his way, Barnabas went his. It created division in the oneness of the body. And then you could really turn to almost any New Testament letter, couldn't you? And you could see that this division is being addressed. It's a threat to the unity of the body in almost each letter. Just as a quick example, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes and says, listen, you've got a guy in your midst that you're tolerating his sin. He's sinning in a way not even named among the pagans, the unbelievers. And you're letting it go. You're letting him come to the table. You're acting like it's not a big deal. And I'm telling you, Paul says, I'm telling you, it's going to destroy the witness of Christ in the world and the church overall. You have to do something about it. So toleration of sin in the body is a problem. You could just keep reading in Corinthians. Just stay in that letter. There's difficulty over, over the doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit and people in the body wanting the, the more prominent gifts for, again, selfish ambition and its glory in the church. There's disagreement in the body over, over how to treat uh, questionable things and matters of conscience, like what meat can you eat that comes out of the, uh, the local market, There's difficulty created by those issues in the church, and Paul writes to address them because they will tear apart the oneness of the body. You could go to any other New Testament letter and find that reality here. And so it's no wonder Christ prays in John 17 and says, make them one. Make them one. These threats are constantly coming against the church in every age. And if she is to keep her oneness if she's to walk together in unity, I can tell you it's not going to be because you're such a great peacemaker. It's not because your pastor is so skilled in figuring out problems and bringing people together at the table. If unity is to be maintained in any body of Christ, it is a supernatural work. It is an answer by the Father to the prayer of the Son for the church. Blessing us with oneness as Father and Son are one. I wonder if you just think through that last thought experiment of what challenges come against unity. How did the church respond to those threats? And, and that really is the key issue for the, the keeping of this prayer. The, the feat to our Lord's concern is found here. How did the church respond to those challenges? Did they cave to culture? Did they, they bow down to the, the problems that it presented so they, they tempered the message to keep the peace? Did they let sin go unchecked and, and say, well, you know what, it'll just be okay. We don't want to hurt our friend. I mean, yeah, it's a problem, but you know, it'll be all right. The Lord will work it out. He's a God of grace. It, it'll be okay. Did they just leave these doctrinal differences alone and say, you know what, you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, you practice, you all do me. See on Sunday. No, in every one of these, as you see in the New Testament, they leaned in and pursued oneness, rooted in the oneness of the Godhead. So when they were persecuted and threatened by the world, they boldly proclaimed the truth and humbly sought the Lord in prayer. In Acts 4, when they were threatened with death, they determined to obey the Lord. They prayed in light of Psalm 2, remember this? Lord, why did the nations rage? This is ridiculous. Why do they come against you, Lord, and against your people? We don't know, but we're going to be faithful. And what happened? The room was shaken. They were more fully filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, An extra measure, I believe, of the Spirit was given to the people in that room. And they boldly left that room and proclaimed the glory of God in an adverse world. That's oneness. In Acts 5, the leaders of the church dealt with the selfish ambition and dishonesty of Ananias and Sapphira with clarity and consistency. It was a unique moment in the life of the church. God doesn't strike us dead if we come in disingenuously anymore, but he did it once to let you know he's serious. He means business. If you're going to put that check in the offering or give to that ministry for means and motives that go beyond worship of God and a thankful heart giving back to the one who has provided for you all things, you're on dangerous ground. It's selfishly ambitious, and it is a plague and a cancer to the oneness of the body. And church leaders in Acts 5 dealt with that carefully and consistently. consistently. And because of that, holy awe fell on the church, and they were further united. In Acts 6, when they struggled with the issue of the conflict between the the sets of widows, the apostles led the whole church to think creatively and principally through what to do next. And so they led the church and said, listen, this is not good for us to leave the ministry of prayer and the word to wait on tables. What do you think we should do to meet this need because it's a problem? and they worked together in a united way to address the issue, and they were further united. And if you read chapter 6, God used that to spread the gospel all the more in Jerusalem. The church was multiplied because of their unity in dealing with this issue. How about in chapter 15, they face the danger of controversy over application of the gospel to Gentile Christians and the law of Moses. That's a powder keg, isn't it? I mean, that is a powder keg of theological controversy. Could have blown the church to smithereens. And what did they do? They responded by getting together, hashing through the issue in accord with the word, coming to a place of agreement. I'm sure some of those men left that meeting in Acts 15 with their own own takes on how they wish it might have gone this way or that. But they rejoiced together at the end of the matter that God had given them wisdom to work through it as the church. And that text says in Acts 15, they rejoiced together and they found a wise way forward. How about later when Paul and Barnabas split? That looks like a a rift in the unity of the body of Christ, doesn't it? That sharp disagreement looks like a a key case of division. One that we could point at and say, yeah, that was wrong. Well, maybe initially there there was a rip in the fabric of the oneness of God in the body of Christ. But I think even here, the oneness of the body was ultimately helped as God in his grace overcame it. So watch Paul and Barnabas. What do they do? They go and they remain faithful to what? The purpose, the plan, and the proclamation of God. They both go their own ways, but they go their own ways in the spirit of Christ, with the mission of Christ, doing the work of Christ, adding to the church of Christ. And more were brought in. So even in that division, when they couldn't get along and had to go their own ways... God was at work to further his oneness in the body of Christ. So, beloved, I say all of that to to point to you and say to you, may we be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is why Paul says that in the letter to the Ephesians. This This is God's part of answering his prayer of his Son. God isn't going to just zap us with this unity and we just have to, have to enjoy it, just, just walk in it. Just let go and let God and you all be one. No, it's a oneness that is of the Lord, based on the Lord and shaped by the Lord, but it is a oneness that we have to maintain. And frankly, some within the body seem to be more eager to find every fault, every potential tear in the fabric of the body of Christ seem to be quick to be offended and throw stones at other brothers and sisters for you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you didn't, you didn't. Beloved, the the prayer of our Lord is that we would be eager to maintain this unity and this oneness. We'd be quick to forgive and walk in humility, bearing with one another in love, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Ephesians 4, 1-3. May God answer his prayer here at Newton Bible Church, the prayer of his son, and make us one as he and son are one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word which sanctifies us, reshapes us, transforms us, and makes us more like Jesus. Thank you for the the unity and the oneness you've given to our church family over the last many years. It is an astounding work of your grace. And you alone deserve all of the glory and all of the honor. And Lord, it's a unity we know we could mess up in a matter of moments. In our sinfulness, we could do or say something that would tear this thing apart. We beg of you to keep us from that. We plead with you like your son pled with you, that you would make us one as you, father and son, are one. And in so doing, we pray that it would be for your purposes, that we'd be better evangelists in this world, and then ultimately for your glory, that you would be greater known and seen in this world through us in our unity. Lord, we pray that you would help each of us to see where maybe we've been slack in our concern for the unity of the body, where we've been disengaged or unconcerned. By your spirit, would you point those out to us and give us your grace to deal with those in our heart, to lean back into the body of Christ and to love one another as you've called us to. Lord, may it all be to your praise as you do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.